Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Standpoint Asset Management. On today's show, Ben and I spoke with Eric Crintenton, who's who's been around for a while, does some great research. You might have heard him on Meb Faber's podcast a few times. He, he's a really smart guy. They talk a lot about systematic, trend-following, all-weather investing, why it works. We spoke briefly about this, but I just wanted to enhance it or double-click on it because he was pretty modest about the returns, but... Uh, past performance, obviously, et cetera, et cetera. No guarantee. Ah, you did the double click thing. I did. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Now it's I'm okay. a podcaster. Now it's official. It's true. Uh, this all weather strategy that they run completely missed any sort of drawdown. Missed in a good way. Very little drawdown during the during the pandemic. Very little drawdown in 2022 when stocks and bonds got clobbered. And the reason why I'm harping on this is because it's not like he got lucky with guessing. Now maybe there were some you know, fortunate circumstances, whatever, whatever. But it's not like he made a market call, right? That's not, that's, not, that's not what they're about. That's not what trend following is. He has a model. And of course, it ebbs and flows, good times, bad times. But man, timing is everything. And this thing has absolutely destroyed in a good way since inception at the end of 2019. And you and I looked at a ton of alternative funds in the 2010s. And a lot of them had a really, really bad decade. And, and you would wonder like, how are the, the stock market did fine. The bond market did okay. The stock market was lights out. How is it? How are all these funds missing completely on like the one big trend? And it's hard, really hard for an alternative investment to survive a bull market like that. And you don't have to match the stock market in that kind of run because that's impossible if you're running some sort of alternative program, but keeping up at all. And it, it, it seems like that's the sweet spot that this fund is trying to get to. It keeps up, but it also gives you with less volatility and the drawdowns. And the point you made on the podcast was great. I won't step on it too much, but there's so many really smart people who have quantitative strategies that are just like, look at all this beautiful stuff I did in computer that creates this wonderful model. I'm just going to sit back and the money's going to pour in. And the investment industry does not work like that. You have to consider how it's going to impact the end client or financial advisors who are going to be the ones putting it in client portfolios. And it seems like Eric has really... been very thoughtful about that, whereas some other managers uh, just didn't go that extra step. Yeah. And the proof is in the pudding. They've, they actually have uh, done an incredible job raking in assets. So, all right. Don't want to step on too much of the conversation, which I hope you enjoy. This is Eric Quintetton from Standpoint. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. We're joined today by Eric Quintenden. Eric is the Chief Investment Officer at Standpoint Asset Management. Eric, excuse me, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk today about all weather portfolios, about trend following. And why don't we start there? So you're a fan of systematic investing. How did you come about? There's got to be an origin story uh, to how you discovered the fine art of trend following. Yeah, there's there's three <laughs> there's three on ramps for me. I, I say the first uh, would be in college. I did a project where. Um, this was in, I think, an investments class where the project was to implement modern portfolio theory by writing the code ourselves. And at the time, I was going to Wichita State University. 
there's a lot of commodity trading and agriculture going on in Wichita, Kansas. So I had access to Bloomberg terminals, Reuters terminals. I knew people that worked on hedging desks. So I got a lot of hedge Wait, fund in college, data. In college, you knew, the, you knew those people? Yes, yes. Um, well, my degree was computational finance, and there's not a lot to do in southern Kansas. So anybody with that interest would hang out at the university. I even started a club uh, for quant finance before quant finance was a thing. So I had access to this whole world of hedge fund returns, commodity returns, um, all kinds of different alternative investments. And I used that data in my project to implement modern portfolio theory. And one asset class stood out from all the others uh, and really added a lot of value to a stock and bond uh, real estate portfolio. And back then it was called, uh, oh, it's changed over the years. Some people call it managed futures. Some people call it systematic trend, uh, systematic global macro, whatever. They're all close cousins. But the uh, data I was using added a lot of value to stock and bond portfolios. So during that project, uh, that's what got me interested in the space. And if you look under the hood, come to find out, you know, 80% of the managers, of uh, the successful managers tend to be uh, either 90 to 100% systematic in their approach. So that's what first intrigued me. And then I became uh, an acquaintance of a guy named Tom Basso. You may be familiar with the name. He was profiled in the book, The Market Wizards. I think it was the second version of the book. Um, the New Market Wizards. Yeah, The New Market Wizards. Excuse me, you're right. And uh, became friends with him, and I learned a lot vicariously through, him, vicariously through him and met other people in the industry. And I just saw all this, um, what I considered to be success, you know, non-correlated, positive, absolute returns from an industry that didn't get a lot of press and that was highly diversifying in nature when combined with stocks or bonds, but most importantly, stocks and bonds at the same time. So, and then the third one was, it just fits my personality. Uh, I was early. I was in. I was in college um, when when those first two on ramps happened, and then I grew up and entered the industry myself and found that a disciplined, slow moving, risk managed, systematic approach is completely consistent with with my personality. And I think that's important. And I think Tom would reiterate that too. That however you're investing, at some point your feet are going to be held to the fire, and you you better be doing something that's consistent with your value system and your belief structure. Otherwise, you won't be able to stick with it. So, what about guessing? The guessing no good? <laughs> no, it's no good. Not a good strategy. How much do you think things have changed in your own personal strategy and then in the, the managed futures sort of quant space since, since you were in college? Because I got to imagine the computational power, the competition, all this stuff. How much has that changed and how much, how much has, has your, have you personally changed that philosophy? Yeah, so I'm going to be pretty controversial in my response there because I'm completely uh, on the other side of the uh, spectrum. When it, most people are going to tell you everything's changed, everything's faster, everything's more complicated, there's so much more going on. And that's all true if you make it true. But the structural risk premia that exists for extraction in the markets hasn't changed at all, at least at a medium and long-term frequency. Where all the change happens is in the shallow, bloody waters with all the sharks with the short-term trading, uh, mean reversion, um, you know, spread trades, uh, you know, short-term supply chain issues, stuff like that. Yeah, that's very dynamic, very exciting, um, but it's not where I play because you need a structural advantage, you need size, you need a network in order to play that game. So there's been a lot of change there, and that's what gets all the press, and that's what people read about and whatnot. But the plain vanilla old school trends and risk premia that you collect by providing liquidity to hedgers at a medium and long-term frequency hasn't changed since the days of Holbrook working back in the 1920s. 
I'm so glad you said that. Ben and I were talking last week about the zero days to, to expiration option phenomena where they're like 50% of all option volume or something like that. Crazy. And does the fast moving markets require you to go quicker? And I said something like, no, you should, if anything, you should probably go slower. So I think there's probably a lot of market dynamics that have changed intraday. Markets might move faster. But if you look at something as very blunt as like just a 30-day rolling standard deviation or price change of the S&P going back to the 1920s, it, it looks how it looks. Stocks are volatile. They always have been. They always will be. So it sounds like it sounds like the the lessons and discoveries that you had in, I'm guessing, the 90s have not changed dramatically to, till today. Uh, two, two points. Um, they haven't changed dramatically at the frequency that I'm looking at them. Uh, they have changed, on, like you mentioned, on an intraday frequency. Certainly, there's been a lot of changes there, but it doesn't affect me uh, or my firm at what I do. So it's not that significant. I would, I would say, though, that the lessons I learned in the 90s are, were not good lessons. You know, the 90s were an unusual decade. The lessons I learned were the lessons from the 70s and the 80s and the 2000s. So I think it's very important, or at least I would attribute success and preparedness to being a student of markets throughout history. You know, look at what your strategy would have suffered or benefited from in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, because it's more likely that we're going to get environments like that going forward than we're going to get a repeat of the 90s. How do you explain managed futures to someone who's never invested in the strategy before? I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, a couple things. Managed futures so, is... So do you, you think it's hard to, to convert people to this type of strategy? Well, to the managed futures component of it, yes. Um, but we are not a managed futures uh, firm. Uh, we, we come from a managed futures background. My background was long-short equity. Uh, and then managed futures, and now all-weather absolute returns. So what we try to do is, is extract the useful attributes out of managed future strategies, the ones that matter the most, and combine them with equities and fixed income products to offer more of an all-weather portfolio. So I gave up trying to convince people to use meaningful amounts of pure managed futures because it's not what they want. It causes too many um, psychological problems for their clients. So I have a saying that you know you, you can you can give people what they want or you can give them what they need. They won't buy what they need if they don't want it. So Bingo. yes. <laughs> so what we've what we've done, or at least the standpoint's an experiment. We know what people need, or at least we believe we do, looking at all the the weight of the historical empirical evidence. They need more trend. They need more diversification. They need assets that aren't dependent upon rising GDP and falling interest rates. That's what they need. They need these things. And these things exist, but they don't want it until after it's too late. So there's two ways to tackle this problem. One, you can try to educate people to help them finally start wanting what they need. Now, that's a massive uphill battle riddled with bodies. I mean, I have not seen very many people be successful at that. Or you can take the easy way out and the smart way, I would argue, out, reformat, repackage what it is they need into a format that they want. So basically create the Reese's peanut butter cup. Nobody wants to buy chocolate from you. They don't want to buy peanut butter from you. You can't break into those industries. Margins are razor thin. Mix the two together and you got a whole new industry, blue ocean, huge margins and no competition. So that's one idea. Or just put some wheels on the bottom of the luggage. You know, do something, you know, make, deliver what people need in a format they want. You can do business. So that's the standpoint experiment. 
So I am I am aggressively nodding my head. I agree with everything that you said. Uh, I want to come back to the differences between managed futures and all weather. Um, but before we do that, can we just start out with something basic? What is trend following? Why did trend following work in the 50s? Why does it still work today? What is it behind the nature of trend following that is immutable, for lack of a better word? Great, great triage of questions here. So in practice, trend following is tracking a diversified basket of uncorrelated assets, hopefully global in nature. So you're looking at metals, grains, uh, energies, bonds, currencies, you know, all the global liquid markets. And you're making sure that you hold positions in long in markets that are rising and that you hold positions short in markets that are falling and that you have some sort of a, a, a risk budget uh, for when you're wrong on your position so that you can have a calibrate the degree to which you're going to lose money and some sort of a stop loss or, or a sell discipline to get out of positions that turn negative before they grow into a serious problem. So you're buying strong markets and holding them for as long as they remain strong. You're short selling weak markets and holding them for as long as they remain weak and then managing the transition process from weak to strong and from strong to weak. That is in the simplest form, just you know, a rules-based trend following approach. Now there's millions of different ways to do it. You can be a short-term trend follower, medium term, you can use moving averages, breakouts, you can do all kinds of really complicated stuff. But at the end of the day, if you look at the returns of profitable trend-following firms, if you look under the hood and audit those returns, you'll see they made money from basically the same markets. They're long energy right now. They're short bonds right now. They're long stocks right now. They're short grains, so on and so forth. One of the reasons why this strategy works to the extent that it does is because it's systematic in nature that goes against all of our human biases. In other words, people, I've been guilty of this, I'm sure a lot of listeners have, have a tendency to, to pick a bottom or to call a top, right? And it's it's very difficult to let your winners ride, whether whether they're going up or down or you're long or you're short. But trend following in a systematic way completely removes all emotion. At least the model is not emotional. As the manager, you might be emotional, but the underlying decisions and structures of the model have no feelings. Yeah, it's a very productive robot, almost sociopathic in nature. You know, it's just it's des it's designed to be a compounding machine and to hold winners ruthlessly for as long as they win. Um, and these things, you know, if you look at the empirical data going back to say the 1950s or 60s, you can see these markets have a tendency to go up more than you expect when they first start breaking out and to drag on longer and longer and longer. And then when they reverse and go back the other way, they have a tendency to blow right through the stop and just keep going down and down and down. Not every time, but enough to blow you up if you don't have rules to govern the process. And a trend following system just simply forces you to hold your winners and to cut your losses. Eric, I, was, I wasn't like you where the, the trend idea made sense to me immediately. It took me some time to kind of understand it and, and figure out because it kind of went against my own biases, but I, I understand it now and I, uh, I'm a believer. But how do, you, how do you get over the fact that you can get so caught up in the minutia here and like the details and not like the big trend piece, like you said, is the big thing without figuring out like and torturing the data and going, well, if we did a six month here, but a seven and a half month here, like how do you avoid getting caught too much in the details when the, the big trend to your point is, is, is all that really matters for most of it? Yeah, a couple things I'll say about that. Um, you're talking about model risk, where a six-month breakout system looks great over the last three years, but a five-month breakout system was a license to lose money. Yeah, so you could you could look at it and go, well, we're going to change it now because it would actually look better if we would have done this instead of that. 
right? So we diversify across different models. We have short-term models, medium-term models, and long-term models. That way we're not, we always have something that is not terribly out of favor. I'll give you an example. So from 1970 to current, our medium-term model is by far the most profitable, much more profitable than the short-term model, and you know, moderately more profitable than the long-term model. However, since we launched Standpoint at the end of 2019, the short-term model has been absolutely lights out. It's been the Atlanta Braves this year. I mean, it has just been on fire. And the medium-term model is just, eh, it's kind of, it's doing okay. And the long-term model, I think, is, is, is dramatically lagged. So just like you diversify across stocks, different bonds, different asset classes in the trend-following space, it's important to diversify across models because they do go in and out of favor. The other thing I would share is that if you have a model that is fragile, meaning like a five-month breakout's great, but six is terrible and seven's great, that's a really bad sign that you're on the wrong, you've got a fragile system that's not durable and robust. Because if I see that, what that means is you haven't zeroed in on a structural risk premium in the marketplace. You've curved fit to some spurious nonsense. And now it's just luck that decides whether you're going to, whether it's going to work going forward. So that's something you throw out. And Michael, this gets me back to, I didn't answer your, you asked three questions and I answered one of them. And then we jumped off topic. And that is, why does this even work in the first place? Is that fair? You, you asked that question, right? Yep. Yeah, so in practice, uh, trend following on futures and forward contracts is basically, like Ben alluded to, the exact opposite. What you end up doing is the exact opposite of what would make you feel comfortable on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. You know, your human emotions would say, "What? why do we want to buy something that's at a 52-week high? Why didn't we buy it earlier? And why am I selling it now that it's gone down by nine ATRs or nine standard deviations? Why didn't I sell it earlier? Every single thing you're doing is basically the opposite of what makes you feel good right now. So it takes a strange personality to be able to say, I don't need positive feedback. My emotions are not the prime consideration here. I definitely need positive feedback. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, most human beings get worn down by this, and that's why people can't stick with it, because underneath the hood, it's basically you're doing the opposite. It's like being a professional poker player. You're not a hero, you're a grinder, right? And it is not fun. That's why most people can't do it. Uh, Now, investing is not gambling. Here, uh, and this is the point, a really important point I want to make, in practice, trend-following tends strongly to trade opposite hedgers. Hedgers love to buy declining markets and they love to sell rising markets. So production hedgers like to buy declining markets to lock in lower and lower input costs. And uh, I'm sorry, consumption hedgers love to do that. Production hedgers like to sell rising markets to lock in their profit margins and their output prices. Why? Well, it's because they're using the futures and forward markets as a form of insurance to manage the risks on their balance sheet and their income statement. I know this from my days of living in Kansas and having uh, family members that were hedgers and working with people that worked on hedging desks and looking at how they trade. They're basically pure counter trend on a dollar-weighted basis. Uh, So who's on the other side of that trade? Now, who wants to buy rising markets and short sell declining markets. Not very many people. It's just the systematic trend followers. So if these people are using the markets as a form of insurance, a valuable form of insurance, which really reduces their cash flow variability, which in turn lowers their bankruptcy costs, which in turn lowers their own debt financing costs, they can issue bonds at a much lower interest rate because they're a much more stable business because they hedge. 
that's very valuable. And it's, a, it's an inverted form of insurance. Now, in what world is that insurance free? It makes no sense. It should not be free. So what ends up happening, and this is a theory, and this is my theory, and I can't prove it, is that the risk premia that they pay flows from them to the trend follower over time. And because they're notionally uh, trading and trend followers are trading on a leveraged basis, you know, that 2% can easily become 6, 8, 10%, depending upon how you're calibrating the risk in your portfolio. And that is a symbiotic, sustainable relationship. And that's structural, right? That like that, those hedgers don't leave the market. No, they're the reason the market exists. Yeah, they didn't. These markets were not designed for investors. Yeah, sugar, sugar, sugar futures. That's not for retail. That's for literally people. That's for domino. Yes. Yeah, it's commercial hedgers, and then you got the speculators and large participants on the other side providing them liquidity. So you mentioned earlier about managed futures, which might be what people need, but what, not but not what they want. And I couldn't agree with you more. I was looking at, so I'm a fan of of, of trend following in, in almost all forms. But I was I was on a, a quarterly call with an asset manager, just checking out their managed futures. This is probably like 2018 or so, and it had been a really really rough decade. And one of the biggest drivers of underperformance for that particular quarter was you know a short sugar trade actually. And that always that example always stuck with me. If you're trying to explain to an end client why they're having a rough time and you point to a short sugar trade, it's like, whoa, whoa, what, why am I shorting sugar? Now, I understand the, non, the non-correlation diversification benefits fully, but if you can't at least even remotely survive a bull market, now, if the S&P's up 11 and, and you're up uh, nine that's, or, or eight or even seven or six, that's not what I'm talking about. But if the S&P is up 9% a year for a decade and you're flat, I don't care how sophisticated your end client is, you're, you're, not, you're just not staying with it. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the empirical observation. Now, whether they should is a completely different argument, but it's true, right? People can only handle so much relative performance envy before they have to move on. And so how did you come to the conclusion that, all right, managed futures, maybe, maybe that's that's the pinnacle of what I'm trying to do. But again, human beings are the buyers of this. So let's do the next best thing, which is an all-weather strategy. Can you talk about some of the differences between the two? Because in my mind, they're synonymous, but obviously they're not. Well, um, let me take a step backwards and say, I don't think all-weather is the next best thing. I actually think it, it is the best thing. So if, if in that project that I did back in 1996 at the university, the, the maximum Sharpe ratio portfolio and the maximum Sortino ratio and the maximum CalMAR ratio were all about the same portfolio. It was about equal risk contribution from pure trend, managed futures, systematic global macro, whatever you want to call it, at global equities with the cash balance going into treasury bills. So, and that was from 1970 to 1996. So if you run it again from 96 to now, same weightings, it's the same portfolio. That is the optimal uh, compounding vehicle when you, when you limit yourself just to scalable asset classes. So I'm not talking about some weird uh, asset classes that don't have a lot of liquidity. So I view the all-weather as the appropriate balance between a managed future strategy, uh, global equity, you know, risk premium that you're collecting, uh, with the balance going into T-bills to try to keep up with inflation. So I, I view that as the best, by my definition of best, which is I want a stable, reliable compounding machine uh, for a very uncertain future. So, sorry, I, I didn't answer your question, but well, what's the what, what's the yeah, what's the biggest difference? Yeah, I, I'm curious how how you differentiate. 
between managed futures and all weather. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's not very meaningful. So we run a um, managed futures program that's diversified across 75 different markets around the globe, currencies, grain, soft commodities, energy, bonds, so on and so forth. And uh, when you run a futures program, uh, like let's say you guys loved my futures program and you gave me a million bucks and said, Eric, go run your program. Uh, I only need 100 grand to run the program. That's it. That's the way futures programs work is all you have to do is put up the margin deposit and 100 grand is twice what I need for the margin deposits to control all the futures contracts on a $1 million program. So uh, what do I do with the other $900,000? Where a typical managed futures manager is going to just stuff it all into T-bills. That's all they're going to do. You know, uh, to get that, you know, the yield. Uh, we take about half that money and put it into uh, globally diversified market cap weighted equities. So basically the MSCI World Index, leaving us with still about 40%, uh, 45% sitting in cash. And we take most of that and we put it into a laddered treasury bill portfolio, leaving us with about 5 to 10% sitting in pure cash. And that, my friends, is an all weather portfolio. And it has about equal risk contribution from global equities and the managed future strategy uh, with a nice little kicker from the T-bills, or at least today we're getting almost 5.5% from T-bills. So what does the breakdown end up looking like between stocks, T-bills, and then a trend strategy? So if you crack open the you know, if you look under the hood, you'll see anywhere, generally about 50% of the money is in stocks, right? And about 30 to 33% of the money is in T-bills, and the balance is just used to run the futures program. Now, the futures program might have, you know, 150% notional value, uh, might be 200%. Most CTAs are like seven to one. We're not a very aggressive CTA, so we're more like two to one. Uh, but then if you look at our risk, the notional values are deceptive because you got some bonds in there that have low volatility, uh, some of the other markets. that have, The notional values don't tell you very much. If you look at the risk contribution, it's about equal, though. Volatility contribution, um, Covariance adjusted, you're going to see about equal risk contribution from stocks and futures. What are the benefits of running this? So you run this, you run this inside of a mutual fund. The ticker is BLNDX. Why a mutual fund instead of a different wrapper, an ETF, for example? So the mutual fund was a, a great wrapper in order to do this. And I've I've done I've managed three different mutual funds over the years. I've also done hedge funds and managed accounts. Uh, I haven't done an ETF. There's a good reason for that, and I'll share that in a minute. But the mutual fund, with the passage of the SEC Section 18F-4, the leverage rules, they clarified what you can and can't do. And they've been kicking this around, I think, since 2014. Uh, and when I saw the the draft of the rules that came out a few years ago, I looked at it and said, our optimal strategy that we want to run will fit nicely into that. So that was nice for for to get finally get some clarity on what the guardrails are in the mutual fund with respect to exposures and leverage and risk and whatnot. So a mutual fund wrapper allows us to do all of the trading, uh, to see the inflows and outflows and to control like the executions. That way we're responsible for what we're accountable for. And same thing with a hedge fund, you know, like I controlled all the trading in the prior hedge funds. And so I know what's going on and it, it's, it's, it's my ass on the line if we're screwing up trades. So I know that. Um, in an ETF wrapper, I'm less clear on who's doing the trading. You got market makers involved. They don't answer to me. They kind of answer to me, but they don't really, they don't work for me. Um, I can't do their job. So I worry about that. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'm justified in worrying about that, but that is what crossed my mind when I thought about 
I don't want to give up the control. Like I'm trading at night. I'm trading in Tokyo, Auckland, Sydney, other places. Are those market makers up at night? Are they doing it? You know, and then also, you know, half our portfolio is closed right now. You know, Europe is just closed. Asia's been closed. So if, if I've got all these futures, these global futures contracts in an ETF, and you guys are trying to buy $10 million worth of the ETF and the market makers are thinking to themselves, well, half the portfolio is closed. How am I supposed to lay off my risk? You know, So that was my concern about ramming it into an ETF structure, which really was designed for common stocks You know, back in the 90s and 2000s. And I'm not saying it won't work. And, and I hope those guys do. Um, I hope it's working really good for them. But when I had to make the decision about standpoint, I was comfortable with the mutual fund wrapper and not relying on market makers that I don't know and don't have control over. Timing is everything in this business. And uh, every strategy has periods where it's in favor, it's out of favor. And I don't care if it's in all weather or long only or short or whatever. Everything goes everything goes in and out of favor. Uh, since, since the inception of the strategy, which was, I guess, very beginning of 2020, maybe technically end of 2019, this thing has absolutely kicked ass. And uh, during, during COVID, uh, very little volatility, downward, downward volatility, actually down, uh, sideways to positive. And then when the market rolled over and the bond market as well, it got doubly railed in, uh, in 2022, very little, if any price decline on your end, you've got, uh, the annualized return of 11.7% annualized volatility, 11.5 max decline of 9%. I mean, those are really kick-ass numbers. How do you view the performance of of this fund since since inception? Yeah, I would say that the drawdown number is the only one that's a little surprising. The rest of them are completely consistent with an all weather portfolio that combines managed futures with global equities. Uh, Which part back. of the drawdown is surprising? That it's been so shallow, or the opposite? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I it, yeah. There's some luck, and drawdown is a very tricky metric, right? It's like it's a one day difference can be an extra four percent. You know, if one more firm hits a margin call, maybe that nine percent drawdown turns into a thirteen. It matters a lot, and I'm happy with it. I mean, obviously, that's you know, single digit drawdown during COVID was uh, pretty good, but. I could have done everything the same, and that could have been fourteen percent. It just depends on what the markets do and and stuff. So, um, so I would say to people, don't, don't expect a nine percent max drawdown in the future. I think that that's you know that that could be double. The rest of the numbers are all consistent with uh, fifty years of research into those were my expectations. You know, it's ten to twelve on the upside. You know, ten to twelve volatility and the drawdowns. You know. 12 to 18, something like that, I think is realistic. And so far we've, we've, we've gotten those numbers and the drawdown's been better than expected. So no big shock yet. If you're talking to an advisor about this product, how do you talk about them in terms of portfolio management and where a fund like this can fit? You know, I, I used the word experiment earlier to describe what we do. A couple things. We've had thousands of conversations with advisors all over America uh, going back to the early 2000s. And we're, we're an alternative investment. That's what people look at us and they say, oh, this is, this is an alternative. You're not an equity shop. You're not a bond shop. I have no, I'm not an expert on bonds or value or any of that stuff. So we're an alternative. So when people describe what it is they want from an alternative, if we, what's the common thread across all of them? And if I just basically get rid of the outliers and say, where the bulk of the money? What do people actually want? Non-correlation in the bear market. 
Yes. So they want a low beta in a bear market, uh, but they want a high beta in a bull market. So <laughs> obviously, um, what they want is something that makes 20% returns a year with no downside. So like, ignore that for a minute because no one could do that. Um, of the realistic expectations, what are they looking for? They're looking for a high single-digit return. Uh, they're looking for volatility that's you know not meaningfully higher than 10%, you know, 8 to 12% vol. And they don't need any more 30% drawdowns. They don't need anything else in their portfolio that can go down 30, 40, 50%. They've already got that in the portfolio. So they'd love to have sub 10% drawdowns, but let's be realistic. If you want a real rate of return uh, in excess of inflation, your, your drawdowns are going to be more than 10%. So they want like a reasonable beta, um, you know, high single digit, reasonable returns, reasonable vol, reasonable drawdowns, something that's not highly correlated with, with stocks during bad times. Uh, and now, today, what is this, uh, September 25th of 2023, they want something that's not highly correlated with bonds when bonds are going down. So you truly have to be independent. So what they're describing as I was you know, synthesizing all of this, what they want is a good absolute return multi-asset global fund. That's what they're describing. Just this slow moving, grinding, very diversified thing. And then on top of that, they don't want something with crazy fees. They don't want 3% management fees. They don't want two and 20 fee structures, simple, fair fee. And they don't want to get obliterated with taxes. So they know they're going to have to pay some taxes. It is an alternative. They don't want these horrifying 30% distributions at the end of the year when you're up 5% for the year. So collectively, I look at all that and say, oh, well, you want, you know, basically an all weather multi-asset fund that's globally diversified. So I'm going to build that because I already do that for my own money. So it's no extra work for me to roll that out to other people. So the experiment is, if I'm right, if at standpoint we're right, and that is what people want, we're that's in our wheelhouse to deliver. So we're going to give it a shot and see if, the mar- see if we're right and the marketplace says, yeah, I'll buy that. Now, where they put it in their portfolio, some people are saying it's in the other bucket. Some people are saying it's in the alts bucket. Some people are saying it's an equity replacement because you guys are 50 to 60% long equities. I've got some people replacing bonds with it, which I don't think is the greatest idea, but they're doing it anyway. So we're still, that's going to shake out. So that's the dependent variable in this equation where we don't have any control over that, where people are going to fit us into their sleeves because they define their sleeves. So my question to you guys is where would this fit? Well, I guess it depends. If you're running just a 60-40 portfolio, I think that this would be something of a split the baby. I, I don't know if between. it's, yeah. I think it would probably be, well, it has characteristics of both. I'm not sure exactly where this, you know, if it would be, if you would take 15%, 10 from stocks, five from bonds, I don't know, but I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be all one or all the other. The question that we've got most from advisors in the last 10 years in terms of like portfolio management is they want something in between stocks and bonds. And it is hard to carve out that sleeve, but I want a 10% allocation or 15 or whatever it is to yeah, something that's not the drawdown risk of stocks. And it was in the, before it was, I want some more yield that I'm getting my bonds. Now that's not the worry. Now the worry is I want some, something that's not going to kill me like interest rates going, going higher. So that, I think that's where advisors are looking from, from our conversations. I think about the guy that, uh, invented, uh, or put wheels on luggage. I think that was in the mid 70s. Some genius said, looked at all these people with their aching backs, you know, carrying their luggage around, slapped some wheels on the bottom of it. So, where did it go? When you went home to store it, did you put it with the suitcases or did you put it with the handcart, you know, on the patio? You got to figure out where to put this thing. So, 
I view us kind of a similar thing. And it's like, well, it's, it's going to be your choice. I'm not sure. You, you wanted a compounding machine that was broadly diversified and had some risk controls in place. We built it. You tell me where we can help you put it. It's like Michael <laughs> with his fanny pack. Does he put it with his wallets or does he put it with his backpacks? Right. I don't know. <laughs> That's a great point, Ben. <laughs> so listen, Eric, congrats on the success. The proof is in the pudding. The, the performance has been, has been stellar as far as I'm concerned. There's uh, 640-some-odd million dollars in this. Uh, so obviously there is demand and you're, you're hitting the sweet spot. Eric, for people that are interested in learning more about getting access to this all-weather strategy, where do we send them? Are you taking conversations with advisors, not you personally as your team? Is there a, web, a website? Where do we send these people? Yeah, we have a much more interesting guy at standpoint named Matt Kaplan who uh, talks to the advisors. And I'm always happy to, to get on, but they got to go through Matt first because he's much more personable than I am. Uh, but a great way to meet standpoints, just go to our website, scroll down a little bit, type your email address into our monthly update, and you'll get everything you ever wanted and and nothing more. So there's a bunch of good stuff that we send out each month. And it's just the data and the facts. So you can make an informed decision. And then we also have a, a content page on our website where pretty much every piece of literature I put out and all the podcasts, they're all there. And I can't stand to go there because I don't like watching myself, but other people have found it useful to find out if my message has changed over the last you know five years or if I've been consistent. So it's all there. Appreciate it. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks, Eric. Okay, thank you to Eric. Again, check out uh, standpointfunds.com to learn more and send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com.